The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, I pray that you would come, that you would be with us now to calm our hearts and to cause us to, to settle. Lord, I find my heart running back and forth, and I pray you would cause me to settle with you, to rest before you, to look to you, to listen to you. Would you cause that to happen now here in the room, Lord? Be a work in our hearts. You've told us in Psalm 2, in speaking of the Son, speaking of the successive kings of Israel and pointing towards the one who would be the Son, you said to him, ask of you, and you would give to him all of the nations, all of them, and he would rule over them. That never happened, king after king after king after king. But it is happening now. You have brought your Son into the world. Jesus, you came and took on a body, and we worship you for that, and we worship you for the cross by which you have triumphed, and we thank you that you reign and that you have asked the Father, and he is giving to you all of the nations of the earth. Father, we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would move our hearts and draw them into line with this goal of yours, with this plan of yours, to bring all of the nations, all peoples everywhere, into subjection under the sun for their good and for his glory. We confess to you, Lord, that we profess this, but so often don't even think about it confess that to you. And I pray, Lord, this morning, would you do a, another little work, maybe even a great work, of aligning our hearts more closely with your great concern for all the nations. Call us to it, Lord, and as part of that, call us over and beyond our prejudices and our biases. Align our hearts with yours, that all of the nations may be glad in you and sing for joy in Christ. Give me strength to preach, give me clarity and wisdom to preach, and give us all clarity and wisdom and focus to listen and to hear you and to respond to you. Father, commission the Spirit to do that work in our midst, that the Son may be lifted up that we would be changed. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. As we've been working through the book of Acts, we've come to a major turning point in the story. Up until last week, and all the weeks before that, up until last week we'd been working in the areas of Jerusalem and the neighboring regions of Judea and Samaria, and we'd seen peoples, Jewish people, or mixed peoples, Jewish and Gentile mixes, we'd seen them hear the gospel, and many had responded to it and received it with joy, and the church was growing, the kingdom was expanding, and everything was going swimmingly. It was remarkable. But 
last week, we came to and then suddenly rushed over a very unexpected bridge. The gospel about Jesus, the promised Messiah of Israel, was proclaimed to and embraced by full-blooded Gentiles who didn't have a drop of Jewish blood in them. That was remarkable. Maybe not so much to us because we're so many years beyond that and most of us are Gentiles. But back in that context, that was remarkable. That thing's not supposed to happen. And so the church wanted some answers. They had some things to ask Peter, who was the one who had perpetrated this act. Which brings us to our text this morning. We're going to be reading Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18 today. And as I do so, if you were here last week, you're going to notice there are a lot of similarities between this chapter, or this half of this chapter, and last chapter. It's essentially the same story. And so you might be tempted to tune out, thinking, I already know this, I heard it last week. Let me encourage you not to do that. Because... What's repeated here is repeated by God. This is God's word, and God said it twice so that we'd hear it twice right in a row. So what's repeated, you need to hear again, but it's also not strictly a repeat. It's told from a slightly different angle. We're going to see a few things that are going to rise up that are going to be different complementary points this morning as now Peter himself tells the events of chapter 10. We're going to see a, a few differences here. So hang with this, please. Let me read now Acts 11, verses 1 to 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, The Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent 
And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's our text. News of these events in Caesarea traveled fast, and before long the apostles and in fact the whole church had heard everything about it. They'd heard of what had gone on there, what had happened in Cornelius' house. The Gentiles have received the word of God. They'd embraced it, received it, trusted it. They had not rejected it, but they'd grabbed hold of it and had embraced it with all of their lives. And so when Peter came up, verse 2, to Jerusalem, the church rejoiced with him and said, Praise God for your boldness in going to uncircumcised men and preaching the gospel to them. Of course not. Not hardly. This, this is mind-boggling to us, but this is the Christian church upset about people becoming Christians. Peter, the apostle, comes into their presence, and he's probably riding high. He's just done something that he didn't expect to happen, something remarkable. He's seen the gospel go to people that he never thought it would go to, and he's spent several days with them now, seeing this newfound faith take root and grow, not just in Cornelius, but in his whole household. His family, his servants, lots of Gentiles. He's amazed by that, probably excited by it, until he comes home to the church, and they rake him over the coals. What were you thinking Going to uncircumcised people. And we, you stayed with them, so we know that you ate with them. What is the deal? This appalling, unscrupulous carelessness. He has some explain to do. This group of the, the circumcision that criticizes him. Now, I read the ESV, and the ESV, the English Standard Version, says that those of the circumcision party, seemingly just a small group of the church. But if you're reading another translation like the NAS or the NAV, you realize this is actually the whole church. It's just, it just says, those of the circumcision, just as up in chapter 10, verse, 25, verse 45 up there, where those of the circumcision accompanied Peter. It's just saying Jewish Christians. The whole church has this problem with him. And it says that to contrast with the next statement in verse 3, you went to uncircumcised people. Christians have a problem. And so Peter begins to answer. He starts verse 4, where he was, his rooftop in Joppa. Now we've heard this story before. Last week in chapter 10, it was told in the third person. Now it's in Peter's own words, in the first person. And so he begins. I was minding my own business in Joppa. I wasn't in Caesarea. I had no intention of going to Caesarea. I was minding my own business in Joppa. I was praying to the God of our fathers. That's what I'm doing. I'm not seeking any of this, guys. And then what happens? God himself sends to me a vision from heaven. He lets down this sheet. It's like four corners. Two corners held up high and two corners let down low. And I look into it. What's in there? All these animals, representatives of all these different categories of animals from our law. But here's the kicker. The interesting part is that there were clean animals, those that had been set aside for us to eat, and there were unclean animals, those that had been set aside for us not to eat. They're all in there mixed together. That would have been pretty strange. It was a little odd when it happened. But there's more. A voice comes to me from heaven. 
speaks to me. It's Jesus. I know the voice. I was with him for three years. I recognize his voice. That's why I said, Lord. I respond to him. It was the master. I say to him, Lord. Because you know what he said to me? He told me to stop just looking at these things, to get up, kill them, and eat them. I couldn't believe it. It wouldn't even be proper for me to kill the clean animals and eat them. I couldn't kill them and slaughter them in a kosher way and eat them. But also the unclean ones? I know. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So I said to him, Lord, that has never, unclean food has never crossed my lips. And he says to me, what God has made clean, don't you call common. And then the whole thing happened again. The sheet let down. The animals, they rise, kill, eat. No, what God has made clean, don't you call common. And then a third time, and then it was over. A threefold repetition to me. What God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made clean, do not, Peter, call common. Do you get it? I didn't exactly at first. It was confusing. But you know what happened? Right at that very moment, this is verse 11. He doesn't miss the divine timing here. You know what happened right at that very moment as I'm trying to think about this and understand this? Three guys I've never met from Caesarea come and ring my doorbell. Right at that very moment. And then you know what happens? Right at that very moment, God the Spirit speaks to me then and says, go with these guys without distinction, without drawing any lines. Go with them. So we did. And these six brothers right here came with me and the seven of us, we went to Caesarea, we went to this Gentile's house, we entered it. Yes, I know, that's taboo. We're supposed to do that. Our religious law doesn't allow me to do that. Although I might point out that God's law does not forbid me from going to their house, but our religious law forbids that. But we went in, it was a little uncomfortable, until he told me how an angel of God had stood in that very place. So I figured, I'm standing here where God sent an angel to stand. How far off can I be? And what that angel told him was to go get me and that I was going to give him a message about how he could be saved. So, it seemed to me like I was supposed to preach the gospel to them. So I did. Actually, I started. I wasn't even finished until God said, yes, you're finished. And he poured out the Spirit on them. I was shocked. We all were shocked. But it was clear. They spoke in tongues just like we had. They lifted up their voices in praise of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, our God. He gave to them, guys, you've read the prophet, our prophet Joel, who talked about how in the last days he'd pour out the Spirit on all flesh. I guess that means Gentile flesh too. Because it happened right in front of my eyes. He baptized them with the Spirit and they're praising him. So we baptized them. It seemed that God had already baptized them with the Spirit. Who was I to stand in his way? And when the church heard that, the criticism from verse 2 stopped. Interestingly, the word criticize in verse 2 is the same word from verse 12 about without distinction. 
The church is drawing a line and it's getting on Peter for crossing that line. They're criticizing him, making a judgment. And Peter said, the Spirit told me to not make those kinds of judgments. And what God did in his life drew him away from that kind of criticism and judgmentalism. And then as he recounts that, it also drew the church away from that kind of criticism and judgmentalism. And what resulted? Praise. Worship broke out. They fell silent and they began to glorify God, saying, wow, even to the Gentiles, God has given the gift of repentance. Note that. You must repent to receive eternal life. You must repent. Cornelius and company had repented, turned. They turned away from trusting in their prayers and their efforts and their generous almsgiving and their clean and holy life which they had plenty of, they turned away from that and had turned to trusting Christ alone to pay for their sin. And they knew that because they'd received the Spirit. They had repented, but the church is really clear. The church's theology is crystal clear on this. That is a gift from God. There's no debate about that. There's no teaching. They're just, he gave them repentance. Repentance is a gift. And he gave it even to the Gentiles, which is remarkable. Who would have thought? Glory be to God. That's the text. Similar to last week in its subject matter, he's telling the same story, but it's from a slightly different focus. It's told from Peter's viewpoint, from a first person this time, and he's kind of giving, really it's more of a defense than an account. Remember, he's answering to a charge here. So he's giving it as a defense, and that's going to color what it looks like to us today. But I think if I were to summarize his whole defense, try to put it in a sentence, it would be something like this. Here's the main point for this morning. God has a heart for all peoples. God has a heart for all peoples, and he wants his people to share in it. God has a heart for all peoples, without distinction, all nations and tribes and tongues and languages, all peoples. That's God's heart. It's vast. And he wants his people, those who already are his people, to share that kind of heart for others. So we're going to work towards today. I'm going to make two observations along those lines, kind of splitting that statement in half. God's heart and what he wants from us. Begin with the first observation from this text. It's very similar to last week, but from a slightly different angle. Let me give it to you and then explain it. God is working to build for himself a people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. It's God's work. God's after that. It's his goal. God is working to build for himself a people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. It's long been God's plan. We're pretty aware of that. We read the book of Revelation and we see there the great multitude that no one could count singing the praises of God from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. We're familiar with that. It's what God's after. It's his grand and global plan to reach all of the nations and give all of the nations to the Son. We talked about that last week and the emphasis there fell on without distinction said several different ways in chapter 10. Without distinction, God shows no partiality and not to distinguish between people, etc. But last week had a little different emphasis than this week. Let me say the same statement 
with two different ways to show the different emphasis. Last week, it was more saying that God is working to build the people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. This week, it's God is working to build a people from every people. See the difference there in emphasis. The emphasis this week comes from the fact that Peter's making a defense. He's being called to account for something he did, and the essence of his defense is, I didn't do it. God did. So don't point fingers at me. I I know you're accusing me of going and doing these things, but God actually is the one who is working to gather in all these different people. I just followed him. God broke into Peter's world with a vision. Jesus commanded him to change his perspective on food and on people. Peter made that connection. He spoke to him from heaven. You must not call unclean what I've changed and made clean. Don't do that, Peter. That's Jesus. That's God breaking into Peter's world. He's not looking for it. But that wasn't enough. His voice from heaven was enough. God, the Holy Spirit, then broke in right after that and spoke directly to Peter again. Go with these guys. And he noticed, he was clear, there was divine timing there. Right at that moment, he brought those guys along, told me not to draw any lines. He's saying that, guys, we don't believe in coincidence. This is the work of God. His voice from heaven, his voice to me through the Spirit, his timing of bringing his people along. God's at work here. And so we went with them. And when we get there, I found that God's the one who actually started the whole thing by giving a vision to Cornelius. Cornelius wasn't even thinking about this. This is God's work. He came. He crossed the Gentile's threshold first. I just stood where he had stood, in his house. He told him to go find the message of salvation. God is at work here. So you put that together, the only way of looking at this is that all the initiative rests with God, not with Peter, not with Cornelius. They're just following him and obeying him. God is working. God is pressing this. God's after something. So Peter preached. Just enough to lay the groundwork, and what happened? God granted repentance. Yes, people have to repent. God never circumvents our minds and our choices. But we are bent to choose one way always until God gives it to us to choose a different way. He granted repentance even to the Gentiles. And they believed, and then God gave them the Spirit. Poured out the Spirit on them. This last act is the clincher. If you follow the argument through, this this is where Peter essentially says the defense rests. God gave him the Spirit. What am I to do about that? That's so important because of what the Spirit is and what the Spirit means for his people. Think of how later Paul would talk about the unity of the Spirit in the book of Ephesians, for instance, chapter 4. Paul is going to press the case with his Ephesian listeners and, and us as well. That there's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one. Not two different groups, both with the spirit. There's only one. He repeats that word over and over and over again. There's a unifying 
work of the Spirit, that he baptizes you and he baptizes you, you guys are together. And so Peter says, if suddenly I find them to have received the Spirit, just like in the very same way that we receive the Spirit, we must be one by the work of God, not by our conniving or planning or scheming or working. God is doing something. Salvation is a work of the Lord. From start to finish, He takes the initiative. He moves people to seek. He moves people to preach. He creates the ground of salvation, the the gospel itself. He's the one who came to earth. God the Son decided to come. We didn't ask and say, hey, would you come and take on a body and go to the cross for me? He did that. He willingly embraced the cross. The Father willingly crushed the Son. It's all a work of God that creates the gospel. And then he grants repentance so that people can believe the gospel. And then he gives the Spirit to baptize us all into one body with one common down payment for the one inheritance we will receive in the future. It is the work of God from start to finish. God is working to build his people from among all peoples all different stripes, all ethnicities and races, religious backgrounds, all sin backgrounds, all degrees of messed upness. He's going to call people from all of those groups to make his people. It's the work of God. What does this mean for us? Well, clearly from last week, it means that we had best not draw lines. That we had best not say, not you, and not you, and not you, and we'd best not criticize people who go to them. Because God is the one spreading the gospel over all of the globe, trying to gather in all kinds of different people. So there's the, the strike against us on the criticism front. We talked about that before, though. Think also that there should be something that's hope-giving here. We've all met people that you think, No way. I mean, I wish, but no way. This guy is so far out there. This guy is so hard set against us. This gal has zero interest. We've all met people like that. But this right here should give us hope. God can grant repentance to anybody. God can be at work in anybody's heart, even when you don't see it. Even when you least expect it. I once knew a student at the University of Michigan who was different than me in a load of different ways. We were different religious backgrounds, different racial and cultural backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, quite different. And I I met him in the course of just kind of life in the dorm. I was there working with the campus ministry, and he was living there, and so I would see him in passing in the hallway, down in the lounge, goofing around, that kind of thing. And you would think from looking at him that if it doesn't involve... Women, human success or women, he's not interested in it. And that was definitely the image that he was portraying. I had a chance to talk with him one time, just very casual and private. I think we were sitting watching a basketball game on TV. And so I asked him, what do you think about spiritual things? And he looked at me and said, you know, often I lie awake at night in my bunk wondering, what's the deal with God? 
he has no answers to that question, and it was so general, it wasn't like I'm thinking, what should I do with Jesus, the Christ who was crucified on the cross? It wasn't that specific. It was just, I just wonder, what's the deal with God? Nobody on the floor would have thought that. None of the women he was chasing, none of the guys he was conquering, nobody would have, I didn't think that. I was taken aback. I mean, our conversation proceeded from there. I, this is not a story about how he then came to Christ. It proceeded a little bit, but it didn't really go anywhere significant, and I don't know where, where he is. I have no idea. What was shocking to me, though, is that there's something going on behind there. Really different person. God's still at work in his mind and heart. It should give us hope to know that God, not us, not even non-Christians, God is the one building his church. And he will do it from all kinds of people. So pray for all kinds of people. Go to all kinds of people. Don't draw distinctions and say, not them. It's a marvelous plan of God's. It's a marvelous work of God's. But, unfortunately, we don't often embrace that begins to move us towards the second observation. The second observation arises from a question that comes to mind in regards to this whole situation here between Peter and Cornelius. Let me give you the question before I give the observation. Let me give you the question so you can kind of follow my thinking here. I look at this whole thing and I kind of want to know why. Why does any of this happen? And here's what I mean. Assuming that God wants to save Cornelius and company, why work all this out with Peter? We've already seen, for instance, God can speak directly from heaven to people. He did it twice in chapter 8 with the conversion of Saul. He spoke to Saul. And then we see right here, he spoke to Peter directly. He sent an angel to speak to Cornelius directly. Why not just cut out the middleman and deliver the gospel directly? It'd be a lot cleaner. Or, if we think, well, he wants to use people. Remember, Philip lives in Caesarea. We saw that at the end of chapter 8, and we see it later confirmed in the book of Acts. This is Philip's hometown. He lives literally right down the street. Why not go get Philip? He's a very competent evangelist. God doesn't do that. It seems that something else is driving God's action here. He's driving everything. He's got perfect control over all this, and he did it this way. Why? That's kind of what I want to know. And the answer to that is the second observation. Here's the second observation. God wants to align our attitudes about others with his own. God wants to align our attitudes about others, about all sorts of different peoples, to align our attitudes with his attitude. He wants us to gain what he thinks, his heart for every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, his vast scope. He wants us who already are his to yearn for, not just intellectually acknowledge that it may be, but to yearn for, to be connected to, to see and embrace God's plan for everybody, for all peoples. Now, notice there, 
I'm not saying that every single person is going to become a Christian. I'm not saying that the Bible is really clear that it's not true. But all peoples, all people groups, he has a heart for all of them, and he wants to align our attitude with his. Put it simply, God causes chapter 10 not just to get Cornelius saved. There's a lot easier ways to do that. God causes chapter 10 so as to cause chapter 11, verse 17 and 18. It's something that he wants to do. He knows the hearts of all men and women, and he's very aware of our biases and our prejudices. He knows them better than we do. And he knew the great distortions that had taken hold in the Jewish community and in the Jewish Christian community in regards to Gentiles. He's well aware of that. Now, there was a, a, a foundation for that. As we said last week, in the Old Testament, God did draw a line between Israel and the nations. But also, as I said last week, we should think of that line as kind of like an eggshell, creating a period of incubation that must not be broken until the right time, and then it absolutely must be broken for the life to continue to grow and become what it's meant to be. So he drew a line there, but it was totally misunderstood and exaggerated. And what happened is that a great high wall, an immense barrier of prejudice and bias was set up between these people, between basically Jew and other, non-Jew. God's well aware of that. And it is highly contrary to his attitude. And he wants to change that. He doesn't want that attitude to take hold in his church so what he does is he publicly moves this issue of Jew-Gentile animosity. He publicly moves it to center stage in the highest court, Peter and the Jerusalem church. Philip's not sufficient for that. Philip's off center stage now. He's in Caesarea, yeah, but he's not on center stage. We need Philip. We need Peter, the head, in Jerusalem, the key city. I'm going to bring this right to the fore and face this and deal with it. I'm going to bring the gospel, thinks God. I'm going to bring the gospel across this barrier into Gentile households, into Gentile lands in a way that will force my people to think about this issue and to face it and to align themselves with what I think about this issue. I'm going to make that happen. It's hard to realize this by, by this point in the book of Acts because God does not give a lot of time markers here, but this is about 10 years after chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And for 10 years, that hadn't happened. And now God says, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to bring it to the fore. We're no better, really. We think, I think we think, that we're a little less biased and a little less prejudiced that it wouldn't take us 10 years to cross the line and talk to so-and-so. That we're enlightened people now in a diverse, culturally accepting country like America and you know we just don't draw those lines. I don't think so. I think it's remarkable how many lines we draw even within the Christian community. Think about the barriers that exist between you and another brother or sister who has a slightly different theological angle than you do. 
I've been in some heated discussions between Calvinists and Arminians. You'd think that they hated each other. Or dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists. It's remarkable. That's within the Christian community. We've got a lot of lines out there between us and the non-Christian community. We've heard this. We move. We grow. But the problem still exists. It still exists. After this point, it still exists for Peter and the church. Read Galatians. We're going to come to Acts 15. They still struggle with what do we do with the Gentiles. This doesn't solve it. It's not a one-and-done thing. But he is wanting to move it to the center and to align us with his view of other people. How does that happen? How does he change us in here to align us with his view, with his attitude? It's a clue from 2 Corinthians 3.18. You don't have to look there. I'm just going to quote part of this verse. It gives us a clue as to how change happens in us. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all... Beholding the glory of the Lord. While we're doing that, we all beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. How does the transforming into His likeness happen? By beholding His glory. We see Him. We see something of his marvelous nature, of his beauty, of his wonder, of his glory. And as we see that, that works change in us. 2 Corinthians explains that. This chapter shows it. Peter recounts this is what happened. And as they hear about that, they see something about God. They see him and they realize this is amazing. You're telling me that God is the kind of God who has mercy on his enemies. His clear-cut, long-standing enemies. The Gentiles. Who have no part in his people of the promises. Not a drop of the blood of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in them. Total disregard for the law. They worship rocks and trees, and the sun, and, and mythology. They refuse to come to his temple where his sacrifices are offered. Or if they're like Cornelius that comes part of the way, they will not come all the way. They refuse him, and he still has mercy on them. What kind of God is that? That's amazing. They're looking at this, and they're seeing the channel Think of, the, the, of a river of God's grace that they think is contained right here coming just to them and they realize it's exploded over the banks. His love is spreading out to cover all kinds of people. Even these. That's remarkable. And it's clear that it's God doing this. The vision and the voice, etc. God's doing this. Glory be to God. That's their conclusion, verse 18. They were silent and they praised. They glorified God for giving repentance to even such a one as a Gentile. They saw God at work. God at work. God building His church. They saw that and they were changed to be not criticizers and line drawers, but worshipers and embracers. 
beholding the glory of the Lord transformed into his likeness, accepting even of the Gentiles. So the question for us has to become, do you see the glory of the Lord? This could apply to all areas of life, but in this area in particular, do you see the glory of the Lord crossing your lines to reach people that are surprising to you? Do you see that? You might not encounter it in your own life. Maybe you first need to start in literature or something like that, reading about stories. Read Voice of the Martyrs magazine and see a a Hindu persecutor converted to Christ. You need to see that, though, somehow. Take risks yourself. Cross lines and see God at work there. I don't mean to... This, this could sound self-serving, but think about that story with the guy, the University of Michigan student. If I never asked him, what do you think about spiritual things? I never would have heard that he lies awake at night wondering about spiritual things. Never would have heard that if I hadn't asked. Ask. Take steps. But more than just in, in actual events in your life, read this and see God is passionately concerned for all peoples to give all peoples to his son. That's what he's about. Behold that. Think on that. Be changed by that. Experience some of the unique oneness of diverse people brought together into one body by God's work. I had a little taste of that. I had an opportunity to experience that in a Muslim country sometime a few years back. This is in a predominantly Muslim country where there were about 1% of the population, a little less than 1% of the population is actually Christian. So not very many. And I'd been there for a little while, so I had a little bit of language competency. Not much, but a little bit. Enough to participate in a, a little small group discussion with six or eight national believers, people who had been Muslims and had come to faith in Christ. And we were just going around the circle, sharing our testimonies about how God had worked to draw us together to convert us. So we, we take about 10 minutes and, and one person would be talking and the other six or eight people at appropriate times would be giving exclamations of praise and worship as we saw at different points the hand of God at work. Drawing this person. There were visions. There were random coincidences. People coming across certain people's paths, finding literature in odd places. All kinds of stuff just like this story. You see God at work doing this and the praises would come out and then we move on to the next person. That person would talk. There's a lot of give and take here. And it came around to me and I stumbled through my testimony and the same praises, the same thanks coming up from them at different appropriate points as we saw the hand of God at work in my life to draw me to him. And a couple things occurred to me. It occurred to me that We are a family. These people from a different tongue, tribe, people, nation, different economic class, different religious background, different hair color, skin color, eye color, language, you name it, different. 
God has drawn together in remarkable ways, remarkable one by one by one. Behold the glory of the Lord. And it changed me, and I saw, that's remarkable, that God would save you like that, wow, and you like that, amazing. We are a family. We're one here by the work of God. And the second thing that occurred to me is that Christianity is not my religion that they converted to. It's a danger as a missionary sometimes to think that you're the one that's the base, that you're the norm, and that they're coming to believe what you believe. It's not the way it was. We went around the circle and we praised God that he'd saved that person. Remarkable. And that he'd saved that person. Remarkable. He'd saved even that guy. Remarkable. That he'd saved even me. Remarkable. They were just as amazed that God had saved me. Someone from the ends of the earth. A white guy. An American. From a pagan land like America. Steeped in materialism. Full of idolatry. He saved even a person like me. Their land is in the Bible a lot. They're a lot closer to this faith than I am. They were stunned that God would save even me. Behold the glory of the Lord to save a person like me, like you. It's remarkable, if you're a Christian today, it's remarkable that he saved you. Behold his glory. And be changed by that to realize that he is equally concerned to save other people who shouldn't by any right be saved. He's concerned to confront this issue in the church that it's reasonable that I be saved. After all, I'm me. But them? No way. He wants to confront that, and so he brought it through Peter to center stage and showed, I am building my church. Join me in it. I want you to share my heart for other peoples. Don't draw lines. Pray and witness in hope. He will draw people to himself. God has a heart for all peoples, and he wants his people to share that heart. To rejoice in his giving of the nations, the nations to his son. Let me pray. Father, we ask you, we pray along with the Son, would you in fact give him all the nations? And I pray, Lord, would you show us some of your glory, some of your heart to save people, some of your power to save people, some of your intention to have mercy on people, even people like us. Show us some of that, Lord, and change us, conform us to your image. Would you gain great glory from that for the Son? Lord, please do that. Grab a hold of us, your people. Conform us to your image. And I pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.